ever tried counting a glass house full of strawberries? There could be a better way. It's forecasting accuracy in an environment where currently accuracy is very difficult to find. We'll look at some new AI tech to predict the crop, talk straw and meet a man with some big wellies to fill. I'll do it my way with the same objective as Caroline and I think carrying that sort of special connection between Leaf and the farming community is so critically important to our future success. We'll get to know David Webster, new chief exec of Leaf, in depth later. Plus our regular look at the grain and livestock markets, Sean Sparling has some important agronomy advice for us and we'll see what this week's weather has in store. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, hope you've had a good week with some much-needed rain falling in most areas. I'm Steve Orchard and in the news this week, SFI payments are to be accelerated. After the recent announcement of further delays to SFI, DEFRA has announced that some payments will be speeded up. Applications should open tomorrow, the 18th of September, and those who have a live agreement before the end of the year will receive an accelerated payment worth a quarter of the annual value of their agreement within the first month of the agreement. A new general licence will launch next month, aiming to simplify moving cattle from TB-restricted holdings. It's the TB16E, and it covers either directly from a restricted holding or through an orange market in England and Wales to an approved finishing unit or a licensed slaughterhouse. Now, it will only be valid for the time between short interval tests, but the move's been welcomed by the NFU. Supermarket discounter Lidl has unveiled new financial incentives to get farmers into the egg sector. It's been a challenging year for the sector and Lidl's investing an additional £40 million on top of market rates, supported by long-term contracts as part of a guaranteed payback deal. Lidl said it's held firm on its pledge to source 100% British fresh shell eggs. And following another very successful Back British Farming Day, the NFU has called on the government to support increasing food self-sufficiency for the UK, with a survey finding that 90% of the public say that farming is important to the UK economy. We'll take a look at the markets for grain and livestock at the end of the programme, but how's the straw market? Straw contractor and farmer Andy Baxter joins us. Andy, you must be just about done. Yes, well, we've just uh, we've just actually within the last few days uh, finished the baling season uh, and uh, everybody well uh, well ready for a rest. But we actually were doing some late hay on last Thursday in blisteringly hot conditions uh, and you're thinking... You know, as many people have said, the season seems to be all over the place now. But, uh, yes, everything's in, everything's wrapped up. We've still some uh, temporary short-term stacks to move forward into long-term stacks for the winter. And we've turned our attention to land work and uh, the sugar beet campaign. And has the weather affected you an awful lot then, Andy? It must have done. We don't need to uh, remind ourselves what an awful July it was and, uh, and into the start of August. I mean, it was actually... A slightly better year for the combining boys than the baler boys because uh, they could just nip out and have the ability to combine a bit more, get a bit of acres behind them, whereas we had to get it dry. And that meant, of course, this year we've turned so many acres of straw to try and get it in a good enough condition for an end product. And is it in good enough condition? What's the quality like this year? We hope so. I mean, the weather had knocked a fair bit of the glossiness off the straw, so it's quite a bit duller and less shiny than normal. But for a lot of the uses, such as the power station and uh, the covering of carrots, that that won't really matter too much. So uh, that's not really been such an issue, uh, apart from probably a little bit of weight loss. 
And what about the market generally? How have prices been for you? The price pressure is always on, and this year is no exception, really. You know, power stations have had a lot of straw of their own left from last year, so they've been looking to uh, put a squeeze on prices and also uh, reduce uh, tonnages, transport issues, taking straw across country, or the cost of putting it onto carrots is uh, as high as ever. So it's uh, it's a squeeze all round, but uh, as we all know in farming... There's always a squeeze on. Yeah, we should uh, we should be used to that by now. All right, Andy Baxter, thanks for joining us again on the programme. Thank you. If you grow soft fruits, how do you predict your crop? How do you know how many pickers you're going to need? How much will you be able to ship to your customers? Manual counting is, as we know, tedious and inaccurate. Might AI be able to help? We got a hint of some new tech earlier this year. Now Fruitcast is getting close to being available. Chief Exec Richard Williamson, where are you with this project now? We received early back and forth, if you like, to just further explore whether this was something that the market would like to see. And then... After that, we then need to take it um, to a product and uh, we've got enough capital now to take this to a product and we'll be looking at some beta testing next year and then coming to market in, in just over 12 months' time. Good news. And Richard, what does the product actually do? Great question. Simplistically, it assesses the yield of fruit. So at the moment, we're looking at strawberries, but we will likely look at other crops going forward. Uh, I guess if we look at um, fruit growers, predicting fruit yield is very, very difficult. But if you have a way to more accurately do that, so you can let your market know what is coming and what you're likely to produce, it's, it's more likely that you'll end up with something, from a financial perspective, that's, that's much better. You're not letting your customer down. You're forecasting accurately. You're also looking at maybe labor associated with picking so that's a big cost of um, of growing strawberries so it's forecasting accuracy in an environment where currently accuracy is very difficult to find it's essentially a, a manually a manual process at the moment i was going to say how is it actually done at the moment has somebody got to actually physically go around the plants and count yes firstly people can go and count flowers on a strawberry plant and say well there are this many flowers, so we hope that there will be this many strawberries. That's one way to do it. Second is that as you get nearer towards picking strawberries, you can go and manually count a section of strawberries within a glass house or within a polyton or indeed outside, and then extrapolate that and say, well, if there's that many there, there's probably that many in the whole glass house, for instance. But of course, that is notoriously difficult to do because, I mean, simplistically, counting strawberries is probably one of the most boring jobs in the whole world because you know and you know human nature being as it is it's difficult to see them you lose concentration it's not that easy to do and also actually within the growing environments whether they be glass houses or polytunnels there is tremendous variation between um, the various spots in those in those what you would think would be fairly standard microclimates so how does fruitcast do it then it has um, a, a purpose-built camera which goes along and scans the crop. So you walk along with the camera or you add it onto a, a robot or you can put it on an ATV or whatever you want to do. It's really very, very simple. It counts the number of strawberries. If we then look at the back end of the product, we have got, we think now, the largest database of strawberries in the UK, in Europe and possibly in the world now. So in that sense, we're able to apply a degree of AI 
to the forecasting. So it's basically taking the variety, it's taking the location, the weather, temperature, it's taking all those variables and saying, well, we've seen this happen before from an AI perspective, so there's a reasonable likelihood that it will happen again. And if it's supported by a, a massive database and a number of scenarios, it starts to become very accurate. You've got this to on the way to market. Presumably, you've partnered with other companies. This isn't just sat in uh, in Lincolnshire. You've partnered with other companies no. to get it to market. I guess. No, no, absolutely. It's out. It's out on various places at the moment under as a confidential arrangement. So people are beta testing it for us. It's also on some of our own sites where we're carrying out the work. Um, the interesting thing for us is that we, we abs- there's no question that this will work. We know that the technology works. What we're busily uh, trying to do at the moment is to make sure that it works for the farmer. So that the software and the hardware we're using and the database um, access and also the front end of the program is something that farmers can easily relate to. Because if this is hard work, people won't do it. So we have to make it as accessible as possible. And you've worked with the likes of the University of Lincoln, I gather. The University of Lincoln, it's really, it's really important because this is essentially the first university spin-out. So um, there's been tremendous work done by the University of Lincoln uh, to support farming and technological activity. And Simon Pearson is, is very well known and highly regarded. He is one of our directors. Lincoln are a shareholder in, in Fruitcast and a, and a very important one. So aside from um, we hope this is successful from a farming perspective and uh, something that farmers will like using, you know, we hope that they will find real benefit of it. It's a real, it's a real feather in the cap for uh, the University of Lincoln. And when do you anticipate that this will be commercially available, Richard? Between nine and 12 months. We are actually slightly ahead in terms of our timelines we're ahead of where we were hoping to be which is always a great great position to be in we have about 12 uh, and about to be 14 people employed in the company now with various disciplines whether it's front facing with farmers or whether it's data or whether it's machine learning uh, we we have those skills um, in the team and we've got a, it's a great great bunch great great team already well, let's keep everything crossed, that everything works, and you make a huge success out of it. Richard, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's always nice to talk to you. Interesting. Thank you, and good luck to Chief Exec Richard Williamson and the team at Fruitcast. Let's head to the fields. A bit better weather this last week for the new crops, but still problems with those cabbage stem flea beetles. Good morning to our crop doctor, Sean Sparling. Yes, very good morning to you, Stephen. It is a very good morning, thanks to that drop of rain we saw at the end of last weekend through into Tuesday. Since we last spoke, I've taken 38.5 mil of rain, and that fell between about 4 o'clock Sunday evening into the early hours of Wednesday morning, and it really couldn't be more welcome. And to be quite honest, it'll do more good than all the agronomists in the county put together. So oilseed rate huge levels of damage and potential crop loss then thanks to the veracity of the adult cabbage stem flea beetles this season and with the biggest issue having really been the dry weather latterly not allowing the plant to grow away from the damage the net result of an inch and a half of rain followed by sunny warm conditions again by the end of this week is that now some of that struggling rape is starting to already show the first signs of pulling away from that direct feeding damage fingers crossed now then that over the next seven days or so the fields that we 
we've been watching literally being eaten alive start to recover sufficiently to give us at least a ray of hope they might make it to harvest. Damage, as I say, critical in many fields. So just hold your fire on incurring any further expense in the worst affected field until you see something more closely resembling a crop of oilseed rape. And in these conditions with wetted soils and soil temperatures still nicely sitting in the mid-teens, you should be able to make that call by the end of this week. Adult activity is starting to slow down now too. So we're getting plenty late enough though for oilseed rape drilling or re-drilling at this point. Well, you know what I'm trying to say. Easier said than done, though, not to spend anything because on the slug-prone land in particular, the downside of that rain earlier this week is that slugs are now very active. We had a huge hatch in the middle of the week, so we're now starting to see grazing damage on volunteers as well as on the crop, and as well as seeing plants being taken from underneath by these two-millimetre-long hatchlings. So those not-so-cheap-anymore slug pellets do need to go on in those fields as quick as possible where that issue begins to show so a bag of slug pellets of course now proper money in comparison to previous years so putting out slug traps and bait points using grain or layers mash as well as walking these fields regularly of course to monitor that activity and only treating the areas affected if at all possible is going to save you a lot of money another one of the upsides of that inch and a half of rain or so is that we're now starting to see grass weeds emerging in the stale seed bed some of which are going to need spraying off with glyphosate before much longer I think to let another flush of blackgrass and broadleaf weeds emerge before we start to think about going drilling in three or four weeks time preferably at least four weeks where blackgrass is concerned looking ahead though if you're going to be using home safe seed do get samples tested for germination thousand seed weight vigor etc and consider some of the home safe seed packages that are being offered by the labs because they also test for several seed borne diseases because in a year like this that may well be able to guide some of your decisions on to whether or not you need to actually put a seed dressing on that seed or whether you can get away with just re-cleaning it and popping it in the ground as it is. But you know, if you're going to risk not using a seed treatment, you really do need to know what you're dealing with to get your seed tested. Winter barley, of course, optimum drilling date between the 20th of September and the 15th of October with blackgrass fields obviously at the end of that window. But if you are aiming to go now, then you're looking to establish around 200 plants a square metre for the hybrids, 200, 250 plants per square metre for conventionals and the seed rate that you need to achieve that has to take into account soil type, seed bed conditions, the likely percentage of establishment, likely field loss percentages, germination, vigour, thousand seed weight and all of those other fiddly things. So make sure you have all the information before you think about going drilling and we'll talk about this much more as we go through the next few weeks but I keep banging on about how important it is to make sure that seed is drilled deep enough and has adequate soil cover above it so that you avoid any crop damage from pre-emergence herbicides. Now obviously with winter barley our options are so limited post-emergence when it comes to things like blackgrass control in particular so it really is important that pre-ems go on quickly and in the right conditions and onto fields where you know you have a problem with weeds like blackgrass, ryegrass, medegrasses, bromes so attention to detail and planning is very very important. The seed needs to be between 35 and 40 mil deep and well covered as a rule of thumb for most pre-ems but getting a good flush of those broad 
broadleaf weeds and grass weeds out of the way before you even think about putting a crop in the ground is the key to success. Dormancy quite low in the blackgrass this year, unlike last year. So hopefully that's going to help us. And I'm absolutely certain that there will be some winter wheat drilled in the next few days too. So if you're going to put it in, make sure you choose a variety that is suitable for relatively early drilling and be aware of the high levels of aphids out there. Very easy to find them on volunteers and therefore controlling that green bridge before you drill, very, very important because if you spray off or cultivate and bury those volunteer cereals with the aphids on them and then drill your cereal crop within a few hours of doing that, as that crop begins to emerge, and that will happen within a few days or, or a week or so in these conditions, then the aphids that were sat on that greenery are simply going to hop off that and jump onto the emerging crop. And that's when we start to see big issues with BYDV in early drilling. So with insecticides so impotent against aphids, delaying the drill for BYDV control will be the most effective option. And as it's all about temperature with aphid reproduction, and as it's still so warm, the threat from the numbers of aphids I'm seeing out here is huge huge this autumn. Potato crop desiccation well underway now. Flailing followed by desiccation still very popular out there where early skin set required. And the carfentrazone and the pyrofluthen ethyl, they want to be applied in sunny conditions if at all possible and in a minimum of 300 litres of water per hectare plus, particularly where you're desiccating crops that haven't been flailed first. So check crops treated with the desiccant about seven days after application and then just assess the need for any follow-up treatment to finish off any green stems and that sort of thing. But once again, make sure you don't exceed individual doses or maximum total doses. Working really, really well this year, both those actives. Sugar beet T2 is going on now. And with all the wet stuff and the warm days that we've just seen, Socospora is becoming a growing threat. We're finding more and more of that out there. So do think about that before you go spraying. And remember harvest intervals, very important this time of year. So 35 days for Priory Golden Angle, 28 days for Revistar, seven days for Caligula. Right, I can hear the drills being filled up, so let's see what the next seven days bring. That's Sean Sparling, Sparling Agronomy Services. Thanks, Sean. How are the markets this week? What's the weather going to do to us? And who is the new top man at Leaf? How is he going to fill Caroline Drummond's big wellies? We'll get to know David Webster next. The Farming Programme with our equipped steel stockholders with Umbrook Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years. Caroline Drummond was the inspirational founder and for 30 years leader of LEAF, the charity behind Open Farm Sunday and promoting the linking and harmony of environment and farming. Sadly, Caroline passed away back in May last year, leaving quite a legacy but a big hole to fill as chief exec of LEAF. That hole has recently been filled by David Webster, who joins us now. David, welcome to the Farming Programme and welcome to LEAF. You've got some big wellies to fill, haven't you? Yes, I'm very well aware of that, Steve. Caroline was a, a force of nature and I knew Caroline well for, for a long time, probably from about 2006, 2007 onwards, well before I, I stepped into this, this role. And she was a tireless champion for the farming community as a whole. In fact, I remember the first time I met Caroline, actually, she she told me off because I said something which she didn't like very much. She was a, she really was, uh, she was a force to be reckoned with, and but she always had the interests of farmers and the farming community at heart. And I, I've always felt that that is what made LEAF a little bit different in so much as it comes from within the farming community so much. And indeed, many of the people who still work here are, have grown up on farms, are from farming backgrounds um yeah so really really big boots to fill um 
I'm you know, clearly I'm not Caroline and I can't do it in the same way that Caroline did. But at the same time, I think um, and I, I was speaking to her husband recently. And we had the a conversation which was along the lines of I will do it my way with the same objective as Caroline. And I think carrying that sort of special connection between Leaf and the farming community is so critically important to our future success. I think um, you you have to do it in your way. As you say, you're not Caroline uh, and you could never replicate exactly the way she did things. No, neither should you. But it says an awful lot about LEAF as an organisation that in all these years, you are only the second chief exec. Yeah, I know it really uh, it really does. And Caroline was such a force of um, a force of nature and such so strongly associated with LEAF and driving the message about the need for integrated management of environmental sustainability factors into thinking about farming. And she was on the fringes for a long time. That's what people forget. She was she was on the fringes of this debate, uh, along with people like Bill Jordan, who was my former employer. That's where I first met Caroline. And then Caroline and I got to know each other through. We both worked together as trustees of the British Nutrition Foundation. And I was closely involved in farm sustainability through Jordans. And uh, and so we were on the same circuit, if you like. But the, that circuit was on the margins and it was bashing the door saying, look, we've got to take this more seriously. And Caroline's viewpoint was she had a lovely expression, you know, you can't you can't go green if you're in the red, you know. And so this point about farmers need to be profitable, successful farming businesses have the capacity to do enormous good in terms of environmental community delivery. But the starting point has to be a successful, commercially well-run farm. And that's what Leaf is, and Leaf Mark especially, is seeking to achieve, is fusing good management practice, good thinking on environmental impacts together with management practices that hopefully will make farms more efficient, will helpfully drive income for the farm business as well. And the fact that Leaf sits within the farming community to such an extent, I think, is still very much a feature of the organisation. If you look at the trustees and the, the people who sit around Leaf, the, the, the membership of the technical advisory committees, etc., it is a very much an organically led organisation from within the UK farming sector. I think you, you're right in, in what you say about this link between sustainability and a farming business, because it's all very well and good preaching sustainability, for want of a better word. But farmers have actually got to make some money and they've actually got to have viable businesses. And if both sides recognise where each other's coming from, you stand far more chance of success. Yes, yes, I agree with that. And I, and I think recognising the legitimacy of commercial interests of farmers, not just in the UK, but internationally, LEAF is becoming more of an international organisation and the legitimacy of the commercial drivers within the processing sector as well that opens the door to conversations on sustainability which are far far less threatening and much generally much richer and typically what you find once you get through that door is most farmers are uh, interested in the environment they care about the environment they know the environment they want to do good things it's finding a way to empower that within frameworks and structures that sort of celebrate the pos a positive contribution of farming rather than criticize it and then seek to sort of knock it down as a means to building it up and again i think that if we want to facilitate change at scale global change at scale which we clearly clearly need to do you know and that's very evident from what's happening in terms of loss of biodiversity um climate change and you know we're, we're speaking today following the the dreadful events in libya this last week these issues are becoming going to become much more relevant so we've got to facilitate change that change is not going to fall solely on the farming sector it will form across society as a whole but as we all go through that change actually working constructively with the farming community to facilitate that in a way which works for us and allows us 
to celebrate the success of the farming community. I just think it's so, I think that's so important. And I suppose that's why after a bit of reflection, I was so attracted to the job. I, I was very happy in my working for Associated British Foods, but I, I, you know, I thought hard about Caroline's legacy and the idea of picking up the cudgels, so to speak. And uh, I, it felt like the right thing to do uh, on a number of levels. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, farming and sustainability should really never be seen as two separate things, because if a farm isn't sustainable, it doesn't have a long term future anyway, financially. Exactly. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. And it has to start with commercial financial sustainability alongside environmental sustainability, alongside uh, decarbonisation and soil structure and all of these other factors, water management. So the, 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 all of these, they cannot be separated to try and separate to separate them out, we will miss something. So we have to think collectively. And I think that's why integrated farm management as a concept has gained so much traction, not just in the UK, but but globally. And Caroline was the was the real driver of that through 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 Leaf. Now I don't want this to come over as a job interview. You've obviously done that <laughs> recently, anyway. Um, but give us a little bit of background on David Webster. Uh, we know you've come from the corporate sector, but it's a little bit of background for listeners on you. Uh, yes, of course. So um, I suppose if I go right back, I grew up in I grew up in Cambridgeshire in a little village called Ellsworth. I went to the local village village school. Uh, moved down to Hampshire when I was a uh, when I was in my teens, and I worked in the local feed mill from the age of fourteen. Which uh, my my wife and children give me a hard time on the fact I mentioned my experience in the mill from age fourteen. But uh, yeah, I got to meet a lot of farmers there. Critically, I think in terms of this role. My uncle at that time was the rural pastor for Stonely, and he was involved in a number of initiatives which were in the pretty dark days of farming in the 90s when things were very tough. He set up the, or helped set up the farm crisis networks um, and established the need to sort of get greater public recognition of the pressures on farming and the value and the contribution of farmers was really critical. So I worked as a teenager on the Royal, preparing the Royal Show here. So I'm sat in Stonely now, and my memories of uh, that event as well, I'd never seen anything like it. I don't think I ever will see anything like it in terms of the the vibrancy. It looked like to me as a boy, it looked like Camelot um, come to life uh, with the tents and the animals and the livestock. And then, you know, it was incredible. Um, so that's there. And then anyway, I went to I went off to university. I uh, went I studied history at university, went to work for Unilever for a little bit, which was a lovely um, organisation. I worked in the food, the food side of Unilever. Decided I was going to leave Unilever to go and um, work for an organisation that was a bit more focused on the environment and farming, which was things I cared about. So I went to work for Bill and David Jordan down at Bigglesuede. And as they, I hesitated to use the word retired, but as they stepped away from the business, they sold to Associated British Foods, which again, an incredible business with a majority family interest in it. Again, so this, this theme of long term family business, massive global business, very successful. But um, I led at sustainability for the Jordans. Uh, Jordan's Dorset Ribeater as it became and was asked to take on external affairs and sustainability for the wider uh, branded grocery businesses within ABF. So I spent the last 10 years working around sustainability developments from a corporate angle, as well as um, looking at other issues like government engagement and policy engagement. So when I was originally called by, by Philip Wynne, the chair of the, well, we, Philip Wynne and I spoke about this role, I felt at the time that Caroline's successor probably needed more of a somebody from more of an immediate farming background. But Philip was very clear that he would ideally like he was interested in somebody who had this slightly broader experience in the in the corporate world. So um, uh, hopefully I can fuse the two together um, well as we step forward now. I'm sure you can. And do you have a, a sort of overarching vision for Leaf going forward, as they say? 
clearly I do. I've got the ambition to maintain the growth that's already within the organisation. So Leaf, for anyone who doesn't know, is on a huge trajectory of growth at, at the moment. Tesco, Asda, Aldi, a number of others, big supermarket businesses have said that they want to align with the LeafMark. So we're bringing in many, many more LeafMark members. So we've got a thousand LeafMark members at the moment, but we're on track to towards 15,000 over the next three, five years. And that, that those will be, both be in the UK and internationally. So there's a huge growth around the standard. And I see the standard, the LeafMark standard, and indeed integrated farm management as being critical to um, driving structural engagement with sustainability issues globally. So I see that growing that's been really important. I also think our education work is hugely, hugely important. We've got to get more and more young people, talented people into to the industry and LEAF do some fabulous work there. I don't know if people are aware, but they've engaged with 40,000 children and young people over the last 12 months. So there's huge amounts of work in terms of outreach and connection. And then, of course, there's Open Farm Sunday, a seminal event in the rural Canada, critically important that the farming community gets behind it, uh, gets doors open, gets the public in, really makes people recognise the value and the importance of farming within rural communities. So there's lots of really good stuff. I just want to continue to go out and amplify and make better uh, rather than reinventing the wheel I think. You can have a certain amount of political work to do I guess aren't you? How does that sit with you? Carefully is probably the answer to that question. (laughs) Um, You're you're right there is a lot of political work to do and actually if I think back to my, my interactions with Caroline and the vision of the vision I can conjure up with Caroline I can see her standing at events in the House of Lords or House of Commons holding significant numbers of influences both to account and in interest around the importance of farming and sustainability and how the two things are intrinsically linked to each other so yes that absolutely is there and there's some significant there are significant challenges which are facing particularly in the UK uh, the farming sector as, as your listeners will be well aware of I think that the challenge and the line which we need to tread as a charity as a charitable organization is that we are there to facilitate outcomes related to the improvement of the farming sector and and we we need to bring people together and the danger with politics is that it, you get into a division and I don't think that is necessarily healthy we need to we need to get people to see the points of common interest and common agreement to facilitate positive outcomes and I think that's the role of leaf in that process well the l in leaf is linking isn't it yeah, so yeah, you know yeah. it kind of fits perfectly totally. well yeah it? no it does Steve. absolutely absolutely it does yeah no completely all right yeah. david one final thing okay six quick fire questions oh dear okay all right online shop or farm shop farm shop full english or breakfast bar full english every time despite your previous employment <laughs> land rover or range rover oh land rover <laughs> country file or clarkson's farm oh no that's a difficult one can i have both on that i, <laughs> I find both of them entertaining for different reasons <laughs> uh, at work tweed jacket or business suit uh tweed jacket i'm looking at the moment neither but uh, <laughs> it's, summer it's holidays great. lanzarote or the lake district oh the lake district unquestionably uh, i have a yeah. sneaky feeling you might say that yeah david it's been great to have a chat with you today welcome to leaf and uh, welcome to a different side of the uh, of the food and farming sector and uh, may you be hugely successful may you be as if not more successful than caroline and as i say big wellies to fill but uh, the the legacy is there your job to take it forward, which I'm sure you will. So uh, congratulations on your new appointment and uh, all the very best for the future. And thanks ever so much for joining us on the farming programme.
Thank you, Steve. It's been a real, real pleasure to, 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 to chat. Thank you. Links FM Farming Market Reports. Starting with livestock and from Mason's Rural and Louth Livestock Market, Henry Simpson. Morning, Henry. Good morning, Steve, and welcome to the weekly roundup from the Louth Livestock Market. This is from Friday the 8th and Monday the 11th of September. Starting off on Monday with a few prime cattle, so the heifers are on average 281 pence per kilo, and there are no steers this week. The heifers are topped by John Scully of Bournemouth at £1,624 per head, or at 287 pence per kilo. Now onto the lambs, saw 321 forward with an SQQ of 255 pence per kilo and an iron average of 252 pence per kilo. Top of the day going to AJ Cash of Wibberton to £140 per head or 293 pence per kilo. Now onto the used 76 forward, very similar to last week, saw an average per head of £91.58. With top of the day going to ME and MB Crowder of Torxy, achieving £138 per head. Now to store lambs, 49 entered, saw an average per head of £66.51, with top price of £88 going to K. Colin of Spalding. That wraps up the Monday sale and now onto our Friday sale, which was our second special sale of MV and non-MV accredited breeding sheep and store lambs. Saw 874 sheep penned. Starting off with the MV accredited section, saw the breeding rams top by a P. Weaver of Newark to 950 guineas. In a non-MV accredited section, saw MD Copley of Crocs and Carroll top with a Beltec Shearling to 880 guineas. Now onto the breeding news, saw 235 entered with an oil average of £124.67, with top of the day going to JB Coopenden, son of Great Steepens, or £168 per head. Following on with Gimmers, saw decent trade with 241 entered and an average of £173.20, with top going to P. Collinson to £245 per head. Now to the store lambs, saw a tremendous trade with 338 entered with an oil and average of £89.18, with top of the day going to E. Timmins of Walesby, with a pair selling to £114 per head. And as a reminder, we are selling again tomorrow, so please don't hesitate to contact the team with entries for Prime and Cool Cows, as well as Prime, Cool and Store Sheep. It's been Henry Simpson from the Mason's Rural Team. Thank you. Thanks, Henry. And with this week's look at the grain markets and prices, Open Fields' Alice Killam. Good morning, Alice. Good morning, Steve. Following the USDA numbers on Tuesday evening, we've actually seen a slightly more positive tone to the last couple of days. Let's add some caution. We're quite some way from where we wish to be, but there are a couple of stories that the bulls could certainly lean against. We've talked about quite a lot of negative stuff in the last few months, so let's try to be positive for a second. These are global stories, nothing about the UK, but it could move the dial just a little bit, which would help some of us reach our realistic targets. We'll start with the global wheat numbers. We saw from Tuesday's report that global wheat stocks are forecast to be lower in the coming season. Lower numbers in the EU, the US, China, Canada, Australia, essentially nearly everywhere, but it will be propped up by a larger crop in Ukraine and Russia. Note the USDA are 6 to 7 million tonne lower than other analysts, stating their numbers are highly improbable. Some of you will have seen a Reuters report illustrating a sharp drop in Ukrainian exports comparing the first two weeks of September 22 and 23. Only two weeks data agreed, but you can see that if yield numbers are lower across the board, there is not going to be much room for error before one or two casual observers decide that values might be a little too cheap. This brings us nicely to the second point about the escalation between Russia and the West. It now seems clear that Russia has no intention of opening up the Black Sea Grain Corridor in the immediate future. Does this really matter? As we've seen from the last couple of months, probably not today, but the continued bombing around the Danube River, which is going to be a very important way of moving Ukrainian produce, 
and also the retaliatory bombing of areas around the Crimean Bridge. Around 30% of Russian produce needs to travel through could lead to some nervousness around supply chains. We may never know how much produce they have, but we do know that the export numbers are key. Without them, even for a short time, and the market goes up. Let's point out an obvious alternative for the world, corn. You could quite sensibly argue that any potential shortfall in wheat will simply be replaced by corn, which again does look in plentiful supply. True, but quite a key player here would be the US. Their corn prices would surely climb just a little, giving us some chance of some better numbers too. Before we break open the champagne, we must be realistic. We're still in the doldrums. The UK doesn't calculate to export anything, and now there seems to be abundance of everything. I still believe that the sensible strategy today is to sell into the carry, grab some good premiums if you're lucky enough to be able to do so, and target sensible numbers to do business at. Let's touch on another positive before we finish, which has seen rapeseed climb over 10 euros on Thursday, back from the lows of midweek. Some analysts are beginning to think that the USDA were too bold in their forecasted numbers in Tuesday night's report, hence the move back higher again. Let's be fair, locally to us, there is very little business taking place, with shorts in the next two weeks widely available if you want them. Something around 350 is circa £50 too cheap would be my initial take. If we're still talking about this in two months' time, then perhaps it's time for a rethink, but I'd like to see the soybean crop harvested before we all fall on our sword this early. Guide prices for this week, circa Friday morning. Feed wheat, September 170 to 180. November 175 to 185. May 185 to 195, with Group 1 milling premium still holding at over £60. Feed barley, September 150 to 160. October 155 to 165. May 160 to 165, with malting premiums varying, but with highs of over £80. All seed rape this week, September 345 to 355 and November 355 to 365. As usual, please call for firm values. Thanks, Alice. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Feeling more autumnal and under low pressure, more rain on the way for an unsettled week. An easterly wind in the upper teens MPH today, rain later and highs around 20. Cloudy and damp for Monday with the pressure starting to drop and the wind more from the southwest picking up and gusting into the 30s. Midweek brings more rain and more blustery winds, temperatures staying in the upper teens and the winds start to ease off a little towards the end of the week but the pressure stays low bringing more unsettled weather into the weekend. Next week we'll talk about soil testing, input costs and much more of the week in agriculture. On The Farming Programme, I'm Steve Orchard. Until then, have a great week. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Embrook Industrial Estate Grantham. BSI ISO 9001 accredited.